Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, obviously yesterday was uh, Championship Sunday, NFC Championship game. Uh, The Eagles winning decisively. Turns out... If your first four quarterbacks can't throw, then uh, that's that's usually not a recipe for success. And then uh, the Chiefs, of course, winning in dramatic and some might say controversial fashion over the Bengals. So the top seeds in both conferences uh, going to the Super Bowl to be Eagles and Chiefs. Jim, your addendum to the morning jolt today uh, pointed out that while it's been a little bit bleak for Jets fans over the past decade plus, the Giants uh, are perhaps suffering more indignity this morning as a result of what happened in Manhattan last night. Indeed. For anyone who missed it, the Empire State Building, the symbol of New York City that has Empire State in its title, meaning it is New York, lit up in what it said was green and white. I guess it's kind of hard to light up a uh, a building in silver to honor the Eagles winning the NFC Championship and going to the Super Bowl. Oh, by the way, the Eagles beat the Giants the previous week. The New York Giants, you know, represent New York. Yes, I know everyone, they play in New Jersey, but uh, that's been a case since the 1970s. So it's time to get over complaining about that. My understanding is that there's like a crowd of Giants fans who amassed at the base of the Empire State Building <laughs> angry about this. Uh, Noah Rothman, who now joined us at NR, had this very funny line like, this is what it's like to live in an occupied country. Um, You know, all a little overdramatic, but no one's had any particularly good explanation as to why the Empire State Building felt the need to light up in those colors. It is, I have heard the decent joke that they just had a lot of green and white lights that they bought expecting the Jets to win someday. And they hadn't had had a chance to use them. So you might as well use them for the Eagles and all that kind of stuff. But Greg, I was trying to think if if like the Chicago decided to light up what we now, what we used to call the Sears Tower. I know it's now some other uh somebody bought the rights to it or something like that but um would it be worse for it to be like purple and yellow in honor of the vikings or green and yellow in honor of the uh packers what would be like the most insulting team colors to see projected as a celebration in chicago oh i think it'd definitely be green and gold no doubt now did the empire state building specifically say it was in honor of the eagles usually they have a little statement whenever they uh yeah uh, no, there was a tweet that specifically said this it says fly eagles fly we're going green and white in honor of the Eagles NFC championship victory on the official Twitter account of the Empire State Building. See, I was hoping that this was a kind of an underhanded way honoring the Jets because I did a little research December 10th, 1983. So this is the 40th anniversary of the last Jets game in New York City at Shea Stadium. Maybe it's their way of trying to, hey guys, come back. But apparently not. Apparently they're just trolling their own city and their own fans. <laughs> Many, you know, many responses on Twitter. Uh, my favorite one was from New York City Buildings, which promotes safe and lawful use of buildings, construction sites, who responded, how are we going to explain this to all of the other buildings? They looked up to you. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, well, no more. No titles for New York this year. Uh, we'll see what happens with Philly. But uh, all right, let's let's move on to the the good martini now. And Jim, we don't spend a lot of time saying good things about CNN. I guess we did have uh, Don Lemon getting a little bit tough with uh, Chuck Schumer over classified materials uh, a week or two ago. Uh, yesterday on a State of the Union, Dana Bash 
had the three House Democrats on who Kevin McCarthy wants to kick off of their respective committees. Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, who are uh, likely to be kicked off of Intel. And then Ilhan Omar, who he wants to kick off of Foreign Affairs. That one seems a little bit dicier, though. There's already three Republicans saying they're not going to support that. So if she can find a couple other votes, uh, she might not actually uh, have to leave the committee. But nonetheless, uh, Danabash not just throwing them softballs saying, oh, Kevin McCarthy, isn't he horrible? Why is he doing this to you? Uh, No, she actually asked them serious questions, bringing up specific complaints, starting with Adam Schiff. Let me give you another. He says that um, this is part of uh, of a pattern. Ahead of the first Trump impeachment, you said the committee had not spoken to a whistleblower. In fact, that turned out not to be true. You know, the Washington Post uh, said so in their in their fact check. Uh, the Washington Post uh, uh, identified that, yes, before the person became a whistleblower, they sought advice from the committee. Uh, when I was asked the question, I thought they were referring to whether we had brought the whistleblower in. Uh, and I should have been more clear in my answer. Then it was on to Eric Swalwell, and she actually did mention Fang Fang. What the speaker said about you is that beginning in 2012, a suspected Chinese spy developed ties to you and to your office, even put an intern uh, there, raised campaign funds for you. You say very clearly you cut off ties with this person back in 2015 when you found out you cooperated with the FBI. But the bottom line question is this, did you put yourself in a vulnerable position in any way so that this alleged Chinese spy could have benefited or even learn American secrets? Yeah. Absolutely not. Uh, but, Dana, uh, don't take my word for it. Um, take the FBI's word for it. They never talk about ongoing investigations. And, and former Chairman Schiff knows this uh, as a member of the Gang of Eight. Three different times they came out and said two things. All I did was help them. And also, I was never under any suspicion of wrongdoing. And then there was Ilhan Omar and all of her, uh, at least a lot of her, anti-Semitic comments over the years. What Republicans are, are saying about you, that there is a pattern of anti-Semitic and other controversial statements that make you unfit to sit on, in your case, the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm told that Republicans presented a list in their meeting, in their private meeting this past week, Uh, including in that list is that you said that Israel hypnotized the world. You said Israel is an apartheid regime, that politicians with pro-Israel stances were all about the Benjamins, which you very notably apologized for, Uh, that you support the BDS movement, which a lot of people think is rooted in anti-Semitism, compared the U.S. and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban. I want to give you a chance to respond to all of that, which they say is a clear pattern. Yeah, um, I might have uh, used words at the time that I didn't understand were trafficking in uh, anti-Semitism. When that was brought to my attention, I apologized. I owned up to it. That's the kind of person that I am. Uh, And I continue to work with my colleagues and my community uh, to fight against anti-Semitism. So, Jim, the responses weren't all that great. Eric Swalwell's response was basically... You know, Paul Ryan and John Boehner could have kicked me off, but didn't. So why is Kevin McCarthy uh, doing this? This is Bakersfield BS, as he says. Adam Schiff, uh, as you heard there, uh, saying, oh, I probably should have been clearer about some things. And Ilhan Omar acting uh, like the police in Casablanca. But what? What? That's that's anti-Semitic? I I had no idea. Uh, And so so I don't know that uh, a lot has changed here in the calculation of whether or not they'll be on the committees, but uh, at least real questions got asked here. And uh, I know it's not that high of a bar, but most of the time the mainstream media doesn't clear it. So this time they did. So good for her.
Yeah, I, I you know don't often check my political emails on the weekend, but one of them said that they were all going to be on uh, CNN Sunday morning program, and I was like, ah, you know, here we go. You only invite those three if the primary topic of discussion is, well, you've just been, you know, they're trying to get you off these committees. What do you think of it? And for them to make the argument that, oh, this is so terribly unfair and Kevin McCarthy is the next uh, authoritarian dictator and this is, you know, such an injustice, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, if you're going to do the only reason you have those three, you can either do one or two things. You can either like let it turn into a gripe fest. And I could have used a different word there. Um, or you can actually press them and say, well, here are the reasons why they're taking you off the committee. How do you respond to that? And we, you know, and good for Dana Bash for doing that. That was a, this is, these were fair questions. These were legitimate concerns and controversies. And the answers were pretty terrible. And I, I don't think we expected that. I think one of the things, like, a couple of things that jump out at me is that really none of the three can admit they ever did anything wrong. You know, it's not like Schiff can say, uh, yeah, I really went too far in describing the ties between Trump and Russia. And because I was on the intelligence committee, people thought I knew something that everybody else didn't. By the way, this is foreshadowing another martini we're going to discuss soon. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like Omar. Omar, oh, I, I didn't know that was anti-Semitic. Come on. None of us believe you. None, you know, none, none of us buy that for a second. And I think the one that kind of just, just sticks out is Swalwell, who would have you believe that he did absolutely nothing wrong. Now, even if he says, look, as soon as the FBI told me about this, I, I dropped her like a hot potato. Well, I'm mortified that I was involved with someone who, you know, had ties to Chinese intelligence, et cetera. So like there there are ways where you could be a little more honest about it that would involve admitting, uh, yes, I thought she liked me for my mind. Uh, yes, I thought she was genuinely attracted to me. They, they, like <laughs> Most of us would kind of observe that, like, OK, this is this is yeah, we all can kind of tell what's going on here. And uh, but Swalwell cannot concede one inch of that. And I think that just like the fact that he is such a staunch partisan and the fact that he can't uh, he refuses to address things with any degree of nuance or or complications or anything like that is just one more indicator. Of this is not the kind of guy you want to have on the Intelligence Committee. It's not that McCarthy's saying uh, you can't have anybody else on the Intelligence Committee. He's not saying that, you know, Republicans, uh, Democrats lose seats. He's saying that this guy who had a relationship with somebody who was in Chinese intelligence can't be trusted on the committee anymore. And that seems really reasonable. I also kind of observe that, like, I'm sure this is a huge deal to Schiff, to Omar and to Swalwell. I think the average American could, you know, would have a tough time picking them out of a lineup. I think the average American doesn't really care who's on the intelligence committee as long as they're doing their job well and they're not leaking information and doing, you know, handling their duties appropriately. And so I kind of wonder if Democrats are picking a fight. Like this is a, a very important to the egos of these three members of Congress. I'm not even sure it's all that important to the rest of the members of Congress and the, the rest of Democratic members. And I don't think this is going to get very far. But because, you know, these three feel like something was taken away from them. This is the most important issue in the world because it involves them so much. Everybody else is probably going to shrug and move on. But either way, good for Dana Bash for asking good questions. Yeah, good on Dana Bash and uh, not too impressive on the responses here. All right, Jim, excellent foreshadowing on your part in the previous martini. Let's get into our second one now, our bad martini. And the Twitter files keep coming. Uh, batch 15 uh, came out on Friday. Uh, and this is Matt Taibbi again. And, you know, there's been so many of these batches that uh, you tend to glaze over a little bit until you actually read a little deeper. And you're like, holy smokes, this is really happening. Uh, and when the, the first one starts off with move over Jason Blair, Twitter files exposed next great media fraud, uh, you kind of tend to perk up a little bit. And so. 
Basically, what happens here is that this outfit called Hamilton 68 became the go-to source for alleged Russian disinformation by all the major uh, networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, PBS, CNN, MSNBC, plus the New York Times, Washington Post, PolitiFact, and Snopes were citing Hamilton 68 as sources. And Hamilton 68 was and is, as Taibbi reports, a computerized dashboard designed to be used by reporters and academics to measure Russian disinformation. It was the brainchild of former FBI agent and current MSNBC disinformation expert Clint Watts and backed by the German Marshall Fund and Alliance for Securing Democracy, a bipartisan think tank. Its advisory board included uh, former acting CIA chief Michael Morell, former ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul, former Hillary for America chair John Podesta, and one-time Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol, of all people. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they you know, flag stories related to Brett Kavanaugh, the Parkland shooting, uh, black voters, the Mueller investigation, on and on and on. And everybody just took him as the gospel truth here. And it turns out there's nothing to their analysis of these accounts that were supposedly spreading disinformation. Uh, as Hot Air points out, uh, Hamilton 68 was basically a secret list of 644 Twitter accounts, which were supposedly linked to Russian activity online. And when Twitter uh, examined this list, only 68 uh, were actually linked to even Russian influence at all. So 86% were basically legitimate people based in the West, English-speaking people, nothing to do with Russian disinformation, but they weren't going along with the narrative, Jim. So we got to shut them down too. So way back when... Uh, James Comey departed the FBI. He was fired by President Trump, wrote his autobiography, and it became very clear that he was going to become a hero of hashtag the resistance. And he was you know, hanging out on Stephen Colbert, um, taking very partisan, very strident tones. And uh, I, so I talked, I wanted to do a story on FBI agents and how they felt about it. Well, current FBI agents can't talk to the press and would not be interested in, in doing that. But I, there are a decent number of retired FBI agents some working in Hollywood, some working as security consultants, uh, some as talking heads. Um, so I went and, and reached out to as many as I could and asked them. I, I'd like comments on the record, but how do you feel about Comey taking this role? That other than Louis Free, most FBI directors, when they retired, you know, they might teach somewhere, they might write an autobiography. They generally avoided anything resembling partisan politics. And I was very proud of the fact that I had, you know, a real. I thought that was a really good article and it was all on the record quotes. I was not asking you, to trust me um, that there are anonymous sources who who say this and who believe this and feel this way. You know, I, I've used anonymous sources here and there, but I try not to because I recognize the danger, you know, like you're asking your audience to trust you. And I'm thinking about how pervasive this has gotten in our politics. I mentioned Schiff earlier and how much he was talking about Trump colluding with Russia. And because he was on the Intelligence Committee, many people believe that he knew something, that he had seen something, some intelligence, some documents, some data, maybe listen to recordings, that there was something out there that was a smoking gun and that for some reason had not yet been revealed. And But Schiff had seen it and Schiff knew what was going to come at some time when they were going to unveil it. And then the Mueller report came out and it turned out there was no smoking gun. Back from the very beginning, I think that was one of the reasons I was like, well, wait a second. You'd, you'd think our government watches Russia really closely. So if Trump and Putin have got some shady backroom deal going on, and it didn't come up at all in 2015, didn't come up at all in 2016. Like, God, that'd be a massive intelligence thing. Well, now it turns out we didn't have that. Although it turns out that um, later on, one of the guys who was in charge of tracking 
the violation of embargoes on Russian oligarchs, retired from the FBI and went to work for one of those Russian oligarchs. Think about how often in our politics there is this discussion of, well, this thing is really bad. I've seen it. I can't show you myself, but trust me, it's really bad. That's at the heart of our uh, current brouhaha and controversies about uh, the classified documents, both for Trump and for Biden. It turns out, you know, Pence had a few in his work papers. Now, you know, way back when, when this came up with uh, Colin Powell and the idea that he had discussed classified information on his personal email, Powell was the only one who really kind of pushed back uh, and offered us, you know, his counter argument was, you're being ridiculous. This information that, yes, it may have been technically classified, but everybody knew it. And if you told us not to email about it, we would not be able to get anything done. This ties into that argument. If there's a whole bunch of information that is considered classified that really doesn't need to be considered classified, that this is the sort of thing it's appeared in open source, you know, it may have appeared on the front page of the New York Times or Washington Post. But even if that happens, that doesn't make the information declassified. Declassification has this whole formal process, right? So Colin Powell was like, look, yeah, you're acting like I did something wrong, but I did something that everybody does. Following this rule and not emailing this kind of information, I wouldn't be able to do, get anything done you know, this is not, you're acting like this is a big scandal and it's not. Um, you can kind of go through this and almost all, you know, reporting that involves anonymous sources has the same sense of like, look, I can't show you what this is. I can't tell you, you know, that Trump is, you know, doing this or what was it, throwing the ketchup bottle against the wall or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But trust me, my sources say it happened. Well, sometimes sources are telling the truth, but sometimes they aren't. And it's just now become this increasingly pervasive one. So now this idea, this person on Twitter as a Russian bot, all it took was this group, Hamilton 68. I thought that was like a really fancy wine, Greg. <laughs> the, you, know, the, you know, oh, Hamilton 68 says they're a Russian bot or they're tied to the Russians. Oh, okay. And yet you think about this. We went through like four years of every you know, left-wing nutty conspiracy theorist arguing that everybody was tied to Russia and everybody had some sort of you know, secretly being funded by the Russians and all that kind of stuff. And this from a party that keeps warning us how bad McCarthyism was, right? Just, we just flipped parties and everybody's perfectly okay with uh, having great suspicion of anybody who's ever had any interaction with a Russian. So you know, that, you're wondering why, why is, journal, why is uh, public approval of the media low? Why is readership lower than people want it to be? Why are people... Um, you know, holding journalists in, in low regard, and it's not just because of you know Dick Thornburg. Um, what you know, what is the you know what is well? Part of it is that how often the front page of the newspaper or the top story on a you know cable news network or something like that is trust me, and sometimes those stories pan out, sometimes they don't. And the idea of well, a whole bunch of Twitter popular Twitter users are Russian are you know Russian controlled or Russian bots. Turns out there was never any verification that from the beginning, and Twitter kept looking into it and saying we can't verify this. But these people were still tweet, still treated, and I suppose tweeted as well, treated <laughs> as if they were Russian uh, ties or something like that. It's egregious. I'm glad this got exposed. Unfortunately, I doubt there will be any serious consequences. Well, it makes me wonder whether Harry Reid set off something, and he's probably not the first one to do this. But remember, Harry Reid just out there saying, you know, Mitt Romney never paid his taxes. And he never ponied up any evidence. But uh, people ran with the story because, oh, my gosh, the Senate majority leader is accusing the Republican nominee for president of not paying his taxes. That would be a federal crime. I can't believe this. What do you say, Mitt Romney? In a lot of cases, the reporters in the mainstream media are kind of hoping it's true. So they run with it. And so you get this information from Hamilton 68. All these major outlets run with it. They cite Hamilton 68. It turns into a phenomenal fundraising tool probably for them. And it's just this self-perpetuating fraud uh, that doesn't get exposed 
until Twitter gets sold. It's just crazy. Yeah, it kind of turns into this variation of, of it feels true. <laughs> you know, it it seems like it could be true, which is close enough. We want to inter- we want to get that narrative into the uh into the bloodstream of of the media and the discussion and things like that. In the end, why why do people believe because because people say, "Oh, well, the Senate majority leader wouldn't make up something like that." Well, it turns out he did. Or actually, I believe didn't he hear it from John Huntsman's father? Yeah, I think yeah, he did. I, actually, I believe that's yeah. what he later on said and you know, yeah. th- thanks a lot, Huntsman family. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we got a lot to thank them for. All right, uh, Crazy Martini in just a second. All right, Jim, on to the Crazy Martini now. And yes, we're near the end of January 2023, which means more people are focusing on the presidential race. Uh, Donald Trump, who, of course, announced his 2024 bid just a week after the midterm elections, uh, hadn't done a ton publicly uh, related to his campaign, but he was in South Carolina and New Hampshire in recent days. But it's a couple of posts Uh, on his Truth Social account that uh, have some people scratching their heads. And uh, he's going after Ron DeSantis. He clearly sees him as his greatest threat for the nomination, which is probably true. Uh, He once again calls him Ron DeSanctimonious, who he made governor in both the primary and the general, and is also a globalist. So once again, we're at this point where it's, uh, uh, this guy would be nothing without me. And he's horrible, but he still has me to thank for this. But nonetheless, uh, the more curious thing here is another post in which he says that Ron DeSanctimonious was doing far worse, all caps, than many other Republican governors, including that he unapologetically shut down Florida and its beaches. Jim, anybody who lived through 2020 and 2021, probably parts of 22, knows that the main criticism of Ron DeSantis was not that he locked things down for too long. Uh, He was one of the first ones to open back up. In fact, I believe it was late April, early May that he and Brian Kemp decided, you know what, we can't let our economy do this for any longer. We've got to open back up as responsibly as we can and get this thing humming again. Uh, And so the facts just simply aren't there to support this. I think what's going on here is that Trump knows that among his base, there aren't that many issues that can ding him. Mm-hmm. But COVID could be because he kept Fauci. Uh, you know, a lot of his base doesn't like the vaccine. And Trump keeps defending that because he sees that as a great accomplishment of his administration. Uh, and so he's got to try to play offense on here. But I'm not sure it's going to ring true. No. And I think, you know, I, I've theorized a couple of times on this uh, podcast that the Trump of now, 2023, heading into 2024, is different from the Trump of 2015, 2016, and even probably different from the Trump of 2019, 2020. He's getting older. Uh, I think you cannot understate the significance of Ivanka and Jared not being around. Um, according to many accounts, <laughs> Trump Trump has a million ideas a day, many of them bad, and they, you know Jared and Ivanka would generally be around to say, mm, "Dad, you don't want to do that," or eh, "I think that could backfire." Let's worry about you know let's let's steer in this direction, and that they generally saved Trump from his own worst instincts. Well, they've decided that they're not going to have a formal role in the presidential campaign of 2024. They're not around as often, and I think what you're getting is Trump without that safety belt, without that um, limit upon him. And I think you know for yeah, so yes, you laid out the the concern here that you know Trump, uh, as much as he got grief from the left. For being, you know, for not taking COVID seriously enough. Remember, he held that that rally in the middle of the summer, and um, Herman Cain eventually passed away. People speculated he had caught COVID at that rally, you know. Um, but in the end, you know, Trump, by and large, did what Fauci said. By and large, he, you know, nodded and agreed to whatever was being recommended. Uh, later on, he you know, talked about how terrible Fauci was and how terrible. Um, 
Dr. Burks was and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you're like, wait a second, you were president this whole time. Why, if you thought what they were saying was such bad advice, why did you follow it? If you thought they were, you know, trying to enact this enormously restrictive, uh, uh, oppressive regime of lockdowns, why didn't you tell them not to do that? You were the president. You were just sitting there. Although I guess in retrospect, it does seem like Trump was just sitting there. Meanwhile, the idea that DeSantis, ah, well, y'all know DeSantis is Mr. Lockdowns. But, you know, there's my, my the, I suppose you could like salute the audacity of this, you know, an attack that's going to get attention, you know, calling Ron DeSantis too cautious and too embracing of the lockdown mentality. That'll get attention, but it's going to get a whole bunch of attention because everybody was going to remember, wait a minute, no, it was the opposite. They remember the guy, the nut job who dressed up as the Grim Reaper going out on the beaches and telling people, well, if you uh, if you go to those beaches, you could catch COVID and you're going to die. Now, he wasn't doing that because DeSantis was so restrictive, right? None of this lines up with, and this thing is, this isn't like decades back where people, this is, this is three years ago. The idea that people aren't going to remember that Ron DeSantis was the guy who was opening up his state and getting an endless amount of grief from the Democrats and from the media and from, you know, every, you know, public health talking head, like, Donald Trump, what are you thinking? But, you know, we've asked that question many times and there's never any good answer. So my guess is that Trump has just decided I'm going to try this and let's see how this works. And I have a sneaking suspicion it's not going to work because it is so diametrically opposed to reality and a reality that everybody who cares about this issue remembers. A lot to watch. We'll see what happens next and who gets in and all that good stuff. Jim, have a great Monday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Please tell some friends about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Big help to us as always. Uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>